Well, so here we are on the edge of a brand new year, 2023, which which no doubt feels strange to say. It'll probably feel strange uh, for a while for us to say these things. I don't know if, if it dates me, but I was reading reading something and it said it said uh, something to the effect that 30 years ago should be 1970, uh, but it's actually 1993. And that, that uh, does feel strange as we think about it as time goes on. But as the new year begins, we, we all probably experience at least some kind of impulse to reflect and think about things like goals and ambitions as we look out on the year ahead. It's a natural time to reflect on these kinds of things. Um, and re- re- very interestingly, I, I read this on CNN, recent statistics show that, that making New Year's resolutions is not necessarily as popular as it once was. So we feel a, a, a sense to... Uh, set out ambitions in these things on the on the edge of a new year, but uh, but these uh, statistics reported that as of 2022, only 23 percent of Americans made New Year's resolutions, compared with 43 percent from the year before. Uh, so I don't know what that means or what factors all come into play there, but that was an interesting thing to read. Uh, however, whether or not we're resolution type people, this is a time of year for reflection, and as we t- find ourselves in this natural time of reflection. One point of of concern, maybe one point of interest that arises along these lines has to do with our notion of purpose. Now, why why do we exist? Why do we give ourselves the things we give ourselves to? We think about our purpose because any kind of resolution uh, naturally will be attached to this kind of thing. How do we think about ambitions in life and the main things that we're orienting ourselves toward as we think about desiring to be fruitful, as we think about what it means to be flourishing. Uh, Those kind of orientations and reorientations don't exist in a kind of vacuum, but they are attached to our understanding of main aims in life. Uh, Now, now when it comes to thinking about purpose, then, uh, thinking in broad categories, our purpose in life, as we understand it, can be attached attached to so many different things. Uh, so we think about our purpose in relationship to the work we do, uh, probably, or or we uh, think about our purpose as it's attached to family life, uh, whether it's our careers, which give us a sense of meaning and usefulness, or our family life, which uh, which uh, gives us a unique sense of, of connectedness to purpose, especially at different stages of family life. Uh, of course, these things, they are, they are very significant as they contribute to, to why we exist in our days and how we frame our own understanding of the, of the ways we conduct ourselves. Uh, and these things are good and they're necessary, they're righteous. Uh, but as we think about uh, these things a little further, we, we also sense that our, our, our purpose, our, our deeper sense of why we do what we do must be something uh, that is beyond the immediate responsibilities of our days. Because if my purpose in life is completely attached to my job, for example, uh, what happens if I'm not able to do my job anymore? Does my life purpose go away? Or if my purpose in life is completely attached to to a structure of family life, when the children are young, for example, what happens when they grow up and move on? There's a sense in which purpose can be tied to specific daily responsibilities. And of course, it's good, and it's the way it, it should be. I understand the huge purpose of my own life personally is attached to being a faithful husband and, and father and, and a pastor and all of these kinds of things. That's connected to, to why I understand that I exist. These things are good. But we should also be prepared to see that when it comes to, to a purpose that gives ongoing significance to our lives, we need something even bigger than the immediate spheres of our regular responsibilities because those things change. 
often we hope they don't have to change and 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 they may not change for many years but they do change job situations change family dynamics change uh, friends change interests change now we know that health and physical ability that changes and then what how, how will i reflect on my purpose when as speaking at a personal level when my time in pastoral ministry comes to a close lord willing that won't be for a long time but it will come it will come to a close at some point how will you reflect on your purpose when the areas of meaningful importance in your life change or or responsibilities come to an end we we need to be able to to answer these kind of questions and and on these important sorts of questions uh, the gospel has much to say. This, this is one of those places where following Jesus gives us an extraordinary and even transcendent perspective. Because in knowing Christ, we're given a framework for purpose in life that stands above and over even the most right and good spheres of immediate responsibility that tend to define our significance on a given day. Uh, so, so whether we're giving the majority of our time to whatever it may be, uh, banking, if we're in the finance industry, or parenting, or educating, or, or managing, or developing, or, or extending various kinds of care, no matter what we're giving our time to on a regular basis, in Christ, we're, giving, we're given purpose uh, that transcends uh, these sorts of immediate circumstances, which is something of the great glory of the gospel, because to know Jesus means we lead lives that reflect purpose, which complements, no doubt, uh, complements those things we do in life, but ultimately it, it transcends it. It goes above our temporary situations that we might find ourselves in to infuse our existence with far greater and more uh, eternal purpose. So, so in Christ, there is, there is something bigger. And we can get this in any number of places as we read through the scriptures, but Paul's letter to the Philippians is one of those places where our purpose as Christian believers comes through very vividly. Um, now, now, just to help frame this, remember from our studies a couple weeks ago, it helps to remember that, that the Philippian church, these Christians that Paul is writing to, they're going through some significant things at the moment. Uh, they, they had some infighting going on in the church, so there was strife, relationships that, that were at one time whole and, and uniquely profitable for the gospel. The two ladies that we meet in chapter three, or in the beginning of chapter four, who were fighting, uh, that they're, they're in trouble now. And, and we even think about strife that can exist, recognizing that it's, it's very hard to feel like we have much purpose when we're fighting with people that we care about. So, so there's strife among the saints in the church. And then along with that, there's false teachers showing up in the church. So, so the good news of the gospel is being disturbed by teaching this distorted and disorienting from the significance of Christ. And obviously, that can affect how we think about our purpose when, when false teaching, when corrupt teaching shows up and, and tries to persuade us of wrong thought regarding Jesus. Uh, that's, not, that's not very fulfilling for us. And, and it's not just that things are hard within the church for these believers at Philippi because they're also facing really significant social pressure from the outside. Uh, we know in, in chapter one of Philippians that Paul is writing this letter to the church from prison. And in chapter one, Paul also references the fact that they face the same struggle in Philippi that Paul himself is currently facing. So, so Paul is acknowledging the fact that there's not just some infighting and some trouble going on within the church in a, in a social sphere, in the, in the political climate of the day, some of these Philippian believers have been put in prison, like Paul is currently experiencing prison. 
And so, and so you've got all of these different things going on within the church. And what happens when things get extra burdensome in life like this? What, what happens when it seems like there's trouble waiting around every corner and constant conflict that has to be sorted out and pressure from places that cause us real hardship? What, what do we do in difficult days like that? Well, I'll tell you what we don't typically do. We don't typically sit down and reflect on our great and grand purpose in life, do we? We don't. We switch into survival mode. We, we start thinking to ourselves, we've just got to get through this. In fact, we don't just think we've got to get through this, but we also excuse ourselves oftentimes from thinking about bigger things just because of the immediate pressure of the moment. So, so I'm just going to get through this, and then I'm going to get uh, renewed in what it means for me to, to exist according to my gospel purpose and these sorts of things. I've just got to get through this phase. Have you ever found yourself thinking along those lines? I've just got to get through this. However, what do we soon realize? Well, we soon realize that on the other side of this particular hardship is what? Another one. Another difficulty arises. Does that mean the purpose in life is, is perpetually on hold because circumstances are always changing and challenging? Well, no. Because for the one who's following Christ, purpose never ceases. And, and we see this as Paul writes his letter into the circumstances these Christians are facing. And as the letter unfolds, Paul speaks to them about the glories and the graces that are found in Christ. He speaks to them about Christ and his significant humiliation where Jesus uh, set aside the glories of heaven, came all the way down even to death on the cross to save them. And then Paul speaks about the exaltation of Jesus Christ, that, that he's risen now and one day he will return and every knee will bow to him. Every tongue confess his lordship on the final day. So, so Paul's unpacked the extraordinary humiliation and the sacrifice of Christ. He's unpacked the extraordinary glories of Christ. He's going to come and everybody's going to bow to him. And then on the other side of that, he gives this church a purpose statement. In chapter two of Philippians, Paul says to them, do everything without grumbling and arguing so that you may be blameless and pure children of God who are faultless in a cro crooked and perverted generation. And now hear this, among whom you shine like stars in the world among whom you shine like stars in the world. Among a crooked generation, you shine like stars in the world. Now, that's actually a statement that connects all the way back to God's promise to Abraham. That would have been full of meaning for these Philippian Christians. Remember, their Bible at the time is just the Old Testament. That's what, that's what, they're, that's what they're reading. And if we remember God's promise to Abraham back in Genesis 26, God promised to Abraham that his offspring would be as many as what? As the stars in the sky. God. It was ultimately a promise of a spiritual family united in Christ, who is himself, Jesus is the climactic promised son. And Paul says to these believers at Philippi, he says, your purpose is to live in a crooked and twisted generation. So no mincing words there on the part of the apostle, that the world is contrary to God and, and his way. The, Paul acknowledges that. But he's saying, live in the midst of all of that, shining like stars in the sky, because God's promise children of light are what you're called to be in this dark world. Jesus says something similar when he tells his disciples that they're to shine like a lamp that's not covered. Do you remember that? So one main way the scriptures speak to our purpose as those who have been brought into God's promised family through Jesus, one main way the scriptures speak about our purpose is to give us this picture of shining in a dark world. We're like stars in a night sky. Which is, which is not a purpose attached to our career. 
careers change, careers come to an end. It's not a purpose attached to a phase of life. Phases of life change, right? It's not a purpose attached to how healthy we are. We know very well that wellness fluctuates. And it's not a purpose that can be thwarted by cultural pressure or even troubles in relationship. Light in a dark world, shining like stars in the sky. It's a kind of purpose that transcends all other elements of our existence because we're saved by Christ to be a light for Christ in the world. No matter our station, right? no matter our situation, no matter our various and, and righteous ambitions, many as, as they may be, uh, no, no matter our health, all of those kinds of things, we live to shine in a way that illuminates the glories of knowing Jesus. So we ask ourselves the question, why do we get up in the morning? And then our first answer to that, of course, is we get up because we love coffee. But, but why we really get up in the morning, uh, whether, whether, it's, whether it's New Year's Day or whether it's tax day, uh, the reason we get up in the morning is because Christ has saved us to shine as a light in the world around us. So, so the question then becomes, what does that look like? We genuinely wonder. And, and one of the ways Paul works this out for the church at Philippi, one of the ways he works out what this shining as stars in a dark sky looks like is in this little section that we read this morning. It's in these three uh, commands that Paul gives here, these three gospel directives. Rejoice, be gracious, and don't be anxious. Well, while there's much in the rest of this letter, actually, there's, there's so much in the whole rest of our, our Bibles, for that matter, about our purpose. Here are three very specific directives that Paul gives to help define what it looks like to live like lights in the darkness. And we talked about the first one a couple of weeks ago. Rejoice in the Lord always. If, if you rejoice in the Lord always, you shine as a light for Christ in the dark sky. And I wonder if, if you've had the experience of someone speaking to you, wondering why you can be as happy as you are. Have you had that experience? Maybe it's as you're going through a significant period of loss or, or maybe a, a period of financial pressure, maybe a period of physical sickness. And someone has said to you, well, why do you still seem to be rejoicing even though you're really going through it? How, how, how in the world can you be okay even though you're facing these kinds of things? And then what have we said in response to that? Well, we've probably said something like, yes, things are really hard right now. And it's, it's not fun at all. In fact, it is sorrowful for me right now. But I know Christ and he knows me. And even in the hardships, he strengthens me and works for my ultimate good. So, so I'm sad, but I'm still actually able to be rejoicing because, because I know I have him. And so as, as, as we do these kinds of things, as we interact in these kind of ways, what do we end up doing? Well, we end up shining as a light for Christ in the world. That's the way we shine as stars in a dark sky. And, and that remains true of these other two the directives that Paul gives as well. They help fill out what it looks like for us to fulfill our purpose as followers of Jesus. And so what we're going to do today is we're just going to take this next one and we're going to do so, we're going to do so briefly um, but, but we're just going to think of this command that's here in verse five, where Paul says, let your graciousness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. Okay. So, so when it comes to our purpose as followers of Jesus, here's another way we shine as lights in a dark world. We let our graciousness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. So we'll just take, we'll just take a few minutes here and, and, and work this out. If, if you're looking at the passage, uh, that can be helpful. Or if you have it in your mind, that's good. Um, uh, first of all, let's just notice that there's this call to specific action, right? The, the directive is here uh, for us to be gracious. Uh, that's, that's reading from the CSB translation, which is the one that's on this, the side table over there. 
Um, but, but it should be said that the Greek word here, um, epiakes is the Greek word. This, this Greek word is a, is a hard word to define by just one word in English. In fact, scholars make that point as they write about it. It's, it's, a, it's a bit of a tricky word to define. And you probably notice this if you're reading from any other translation than from the CSV. So, so the NIV, for example, it translates this word as gentleness. ESV uses the word reasonableness. Uh, the old King James Version uh, says moderation. Interestingly, Tyndale, who provided the, the first English translation of the Bible uh, to be printed with the printing press in 1526, he translates this as softness. Let your softness be known to everyone. Uh, Luther, in his German translation, he uses the equivalent of our English word for leniency. Let your leniency be known to everyone. So, so there's, there's, a, there's a, bit of a, a bit of difficulty really nailing down exactly what's going on here. But, but what can help us is to look at the ways this word is used in parallel with other words in the New Testament. Uh, this word actually shows up seven times in the New Testament between its noun and verb forms. And as it's used in parallel ways, we can start to get a hint, uh, maybe a, a facet of the diamond of meaning, if you like. We can start to get a hint uh, of, of its meaning just because parallel terms help to define things for us. And, and we know this just, just as, as we're good readers. You know, you, you open up uh, the news app and what does it tell you it's going to be today? Well, it tells you it's going to be wet and rainy. And we don't need both of those, do we? But one helps define the other. It's going to be clear and sunny. Right? But both of those help help to define a whole picture. And in a sense, we can do that with words uh, cautiously, but we can do that with words uh, when they're in parallel in the New Testament. So, so, for example, this word is used to describe the wisdom that comes from above in James chapter 3, and it's used in parallel with being peaceful. Peaceful. Or, or it's used in a list of elder qualifications in Timothy and Titus, and there it's contrasted with being quarrelsome. Right? In 2 Corinthians 10, Paul uses this word to describe Jesus himself in parallel with the word meekness. Okay, so, so we've got a number of different ways this word is used. And as we think about its association, we can see that it's a term which is connected to a kind of, 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 of kindness priority, a, a gentleness priority, a, a not fighting and not always getting the last word kind of priority is reflected in the meaning here. There's this inclination towards grace instead of strife. Um, something that's very interesting to know is that is that scholars find this word used somewhat regularly in legal contexts, legal documents from the Greco-Roman world, and it describes a person uh, when they when they could exert the full force of the law on their opponent, and instead they refrain from doing that. So, so for example, in a lawsuit situation, somebody could demand much more than they end up receiving in the end, and this is the word that's used to describe. A, a person like that, uh, which Aristotle actually writes about a person like this as well, where he describes them as one who's content to receive a smaller share, though he has the law on his side. So, so as we put these things together, the, the picture we have emerging is a kind of gentle and benevolent moderation. Uh, the, this word expresses an, an extension of kindness that goes beyond what's deserved. So, so maybe to, to combine the, the word we have in our CSB with how Luther described things, which was very helpful, we can understand this to be a kind of, a kind of gracious leniency that's this, uh, depicted here with, with this term. Which is important to catch because um, when we read the ESV translation of, of this, for example, it can be just a touch misleading in that the ESV has it as reasonableness. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. 
And it's been very interesting to, to study this out, but, but that actually doesn't quite work because if you think about reasonableness, what do you think about? Well, you think about a kind of one-for-one one correspondence, don't you? Like, like this logically corresponds with that in this kind of one-to-one -one relationship. But that's not really what this word means. What, what's here isn't actually reasonable in the strictest sense of, of that word. It's reasonable to go to court and ask for ask for exactly what you're owed, but this person would go to court and ask for less than what they're owed. You see, so there's this there's this uh, unreasonableness almost in terms of a grace that's being extended with with the with the uh, term that's used here. And we we could go on. I'll, I'll refrain from going on and on. I'll just tell you this one last thing in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which is the Greek translation that, for example, the Philippians would have used in their own worship. We find it quoted in the book of Hebrews in Psalm 86, when it refers to God's kindness to us in forgiving our sins, kindness, it uses this word to translate that kind of kindness. So, so it's a, it's a, it's a grace that's not deserved ultimately is what's reflected here. And then that's what Paul is calling for here. We can call it a kind of gracious leniency. So, so, so in the economy of regular scales, I could go after more, but I'm not going to, I'm going to let things go is what he's what he's expressing here. That's that's a specific action that's called for in this posture, which then immediately makes us think about application. Okay, so, so what does Paul mean for us to do with this kind of posture that we're to be cultivating? How, how, how does this play out? Well, Paul actually gives us a sphere of application in the, in the next clause where he says, let your graciousness, so let your gracious leniency be known to everyone. To everyone, right? So, so not just others in the church, not just others in your family, not just people you like, not just friends or acquaintances, but everyone. So, so we can immediately start to flesh out the implications of what's here, just as we think about the context uh, of the Philippians' own situation. Uh, because who does everyone mean for this church that Paul's writing to? Well, well, it means that they're supposed to show gracious leniency to those uh, whom they might be to, at odds with within the church. That's a, that's a sphere of application for them. But that's not the only sphere. Another sphere of application for them is to show gracious leniency toward those in the social systems around them who may very well be showing up at their door and saying, because you're saying Jesus is Lord instead of Caesar is Lord, we're going to be taking you to prison now. Gracious leniency to everyone. So, so the response in these kinds of situations is one to be this, it was one to, uh, that's to be benevolent and kind and gracious instead of uh, kind of vitriolic or any, any kind of violence in, in those kinds of ways, which sounds an awful lot like how Jesus told us to treat our enemies, doesn't it? Love them, do good to those who hate you. Right? Ultimately, in a sense, Paul's writing a commentary on that here. Now, now this doesn't mean that there's not a time for hard words. In fact, Paul, just earlier in chapter three, he's called the false teachers in the church dogs, right? That doesn't sound very graciously lenient, does it? Uh, but we always have to balance these things in a proper way. He's not calling for a renunciation of, of conviction here or something like that. He's, he's not saying that there's no time to take a stand, to stand firm, these kinds of things. But he is saying that there's to be this general reputation that marks out Christian believers, uh, especially as we live with gospel purpose, Paul's saying that when it comes to thinking about Christian believers, everyone should be able to note a kind of gentle benevolence that exists 
in our in our in our countenance, in our interactions, in these kinds of things. So so believers are to have this reputation for gracious leniency, this this willingness to not have to have the last word in an argument, maybe. This willingness to even be taken advantage of and not demand a pound of flesh in return. Now that's that's to be our reputation as shaint, as saints uh, shining in, in, in the dark world. Now, just with that general frame, we can ask ourselves the question, you know, especially over the last few years in American culture, is this the reputation of Christian believers? Is, is the Huffington Post writing articles citing the gracious leniency of Christians as they interact with others? Is Twitter lauding the benevolence of Christian believers in their social media presence? Is that our reputation broadly as Christians in America? But it is not. To our shame, it is not. Oh, we're quarrelsome. We want what's coming to us, don't we? We demand instead of defer. We're harsh instead of meek. Broadly speaking, for Christian believers in our day, that, that's, a, that's a big problem because that's not living out the purpose that Christ has saved us for. On, on, a, on a large scale, repentance is needed in this area. Broadly speaking, we need to, to, to uh, attend to this as a contemporary Christian culture, recognizing that our attitude is often out of alignment with what Christ calls us to in these kinds of things. So we can think about that broadly, and it can be fairly discouraging, but, 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 but we need to recognize that that's something uh, I'm, I'm called to reflect at a personal level so we can check ourselves personally by this. So I ask me as I ask you, you the question, am I inclined toward generous leniency, a kind of gracious leniency? Are you inclined toward that in, in conversations maybe? Right. In conversations, am I okay to be wrong and just leave it? Even if I'm right, can I let it alone? In interactions, am I okay to be treated a little poorly and then then let it go? Am I graciously lenient in these things? We live in a day when when what's promoted is so different than this so often times, whether we're talking inside or outside the church, because so often we operate in ways that, that 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 abrasively stand firm saying my position on this must be honored by you don't we do that we we hold our positions demanding that our voice be listened to and understood we require that promised expectations must be met you said you would do it you must do it full stop mistakes need to be owned up to wrongs need to be righted an account must be given if you wrong me once more i'm done with you i will not be hard pressed in these kinds of ways i will be heard but is that the mind of christ I am gentle and lowly of spirit. Ready to be wronged at times. Prepared to forbear when offended. Offering an accepting smile when mistakes are made instead of requiring harsh penalties. This is to be our reputation as followers of Jesus. It's not to say that there's no accountability. But it is to say that our general demeanor is to be one that extends this kind of grace. Because if we're like this amid a crooked and twisted generation that demands their pound of flesh, we will shine like lights in a dark sky, won't we? This will will look different. It's this person who's ultimately going to be able to be useful comforting others who find themselves in a position of failure. It's this person who's ultimately going to be useful uh, to those who are in pain. It's this person who's going to bring healing instead of harm because their goal ultimately is not themselves and all that might be due to them, but their goal is an extension of grace toward others. So we can just, we can check ourselves by this. How, how am I doing with this? How are you doing with this? It's, it's a big one. 
but, but we wouldn't expect anything less in terms of purpose as we follow Jesus. And then actually, it's, it's just on this point that we have the final clause in this directive, uh, which, which helps us understand things, because why would we ever live in this way to begin with? Why, why would we ever be okay being wronged without always uh, having to somehow broadcast the fact that things need to be made right for me? How would we ever be okay with that? Well, Paul finishes uh, with just two words in Greek. We have to use more in English, but just two words. Why could we ever live this way? He says, because the Lord is near. The Lord is near. Christ is near uh, temporally. We can say that. In, in other words, we know from the New Testament that, well, God doesn't measure time as we do. Jesus will return. He'll return soon. Je Jesus is, is near in that sense. He will come back as the reigning Lord and every knee will bow to him. And, and even now he's near to us. He, he's near uh, temporally, but he's also near spatially, which we have in Psalm 38, places like that. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted. Right? Jesus is present by the ministry of the Holy Spirit with us. He promises to be with us as we're out in the world shining for him, which is just something to note. Maybe Paul has in his mind here the Great Commission, whereas Jesus gives his disciples a mandate to go out into all the world and preach the gospel. What, does he attend, what promise does he attend that way? I will be with you always as you go and do that. Right? So, so why are we able to live in a way that extends kindness beyond what's immediately reasonable? Why, why can we take offense and not have to have it righted? Why can we have a reputation for being willing to give, even if it means we're wronged or not made whole on the other end? Why? Well, it's the same reason we're able to rejoice in the Lord always, isn't it? It's because we have Jesus. One day Jesus will return. He's near in that sense. One day Jesus will return, and he's the one who will set all wrongs right perfectly so we can rest in that. And we have Jesus and his nearness to us currently. By the ministry of the Holy Spirit, he empowers us to live in a way that it is entirely transformed and new. I don't keep going in my life because, because the books are perfectly balanced in my relationships. Can you imagine if that's what we needed to be okay and fulfill purposes? If all the relationships were just perfectly right and everybody had given what they ought to give and all of those kinds of things, wrongs occur. But we keep going, extending benevolent favor toward others because Christ has made things right and he is right for us. And he's with us presently, enabling us to go along in the way of grace that he calls us to. So instead, we just recognize that our strength and well-being isn't tied up in what another person does or doesn't do. But instead, our strength and well-being is attached to the fact that Jesus will come again. He'll set all things right. And Jesus is with me now, underpinning my life as I go along, giving me the strength uh, that I that I require. Which, of course, does just bring us back to reflect on Christ himself and his posture toward me. But what if Jesus demanded from me what he deserves from me? What if he demanded justice for the blood he shed on the cross for me? Where, where would I be? Where would you be? I'll tell you where. We would be in hell. We would be eternally condemned. But this is not what Jesus demands. This is not his posture for us because Jesus himself is the gospel. Jesus himself is the good news. He is gracious leniency incarnate. He's the gentle one with us. And, and so how does that impact us? Well, well it means that, that our purpose in the world is to live toward others as Jesus has lived toward us. Right? Graciously, 
kindly, not demanding, but forbearing, not always having to have it reconciled, but willing to exist in situations where I have to give more than I technically should, and even with its and even when it's painful. Right? But after all, we're, we're, we're people of the cross. And then so here we have this, uh, this New Year's resolution. We can put it down that way if you like. Here's a purpose statement for us as we enter the year ahead. Let your gracious leniency be known to everyone. The Lord is near. I wonder, it's just worth reflecting on. Is there a situation right now where you need to extend this kind of benevolence? Extend it. Jesus is with you as you do. Jesus will return to, to right all things that have ever been wrong. And Jesus has extended this kind of kindness to us first of all. And so, as I mentioned, the, the commentators, they, they struggled a bit trying to define this word using, using many different words to, to, to sort it out. Uh, but one commentator, in trying to explain what this, this, this gracious benevolence, gracious leniency, what this word means, he quoted a line from Shakespeare's Merchant of Venice. It's in the interaction with Portia and the, and the Shylock. And, and she says this to, the Shy, to Shylock. Uh, she says, though justice be thy plea, remember this, that in the course of justice, none of us would see salvation. And that can just control our demeanor toward others. Though justice might be my plea, I need this to be right. Imagine if the Lord of the universe said that to me. Imagine if my wife said that to me. Where would we find ourselves? This is all, at the end of the day, this is the posture of grace that underpins all kinds of wholeness and flourishing and relationships. It's no wonder Paul writes this to a church that's, that, is, that is at odds with one another within the church. This is a conflict reducer. I'm willing to give without getting, which ultimately brings us back to the, to the grace that, that Christ has extended to us on the cross. The, the, the grace of Christ that flows first to me then is required of me as I engage in life with other people. And so as we do this, as we engage in these kinds of ways, we shine amid a crooked and twisted generation, like Paul says, but we shine as stars in an otherwise dark sky and we fulfill Christ's purpose for us. Part of the way we know where we're understanding the gospel is when the truth of the gospel can apply to any situation. If somebody has gospel truth, uh, but it will only work in this kind of way, then you know you haven't got the gospel. This is the kind of gospel truth that applies everywhere. We can be graciously lenient in all the different spheres of our life. And in this, we find our purpose in Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we are thankful for your word. We ask that we'd be renewed in it. That we know you've extended us grace beyond measure. Grace more than we could ever comprehend. You have been so kind to us in Jesus. And we pray, Father, as we interact with others, that uh, we would be like that to others. And that we would be ready to forbear, ready to let things go, ready to not have to have it even. Uh, Lord, may we be people who are benevolent and, and willing to give and forgive. Uh, we recognize that we do so uh, not, not by our own strength, but we need the help of Jesus. And we're thankful that he promises to be with us. We're thankful that his presence is not only an immediate personal comfort to us, but it's also a compulsion uh, to live in the ways he calls us to live. And so we ask that you would help us to this end. And may Christ be glorified as we do these things. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.